Good morning. Welcome this 16th Sunday after Pentecost to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. We are delighted to see you here. We will continue to make audio available of this service online for those who are not able to be with us today as we pray for them and for all of you to continue to be safe and well. A few notes as we begin our worship once again. As always, we invite you as a gift to yourself and your neighbor to silence your phones. We are asking you, secondly, to remain masked throughout the entire service, which means that singing may be more difficult than usual. As a matter of self-care, do not push yourself. If you are having trouble singing, let the congregation carry you along. If you have any concerns during the service otherwise, our ushers in the back can assist you. At the end of the service, please remain seated and wait until an usher dismisses you by pew, beginning with those closest to the entrance. Finally, after the service, we invite you to uh, remain, if you wish, for fellowship in the narthex and really outside. Um, so we will have that. And then, of course, if you are uh, so inclined, we have uh, 11.30 uh, Zoom coffee hour online, and then at 12.30, a brief discussion of the sermon online, if you are interested. Today, our assisting minister is Opplinger the Other. Uh, Mark Opplinger, not Gene Opplinger, is listed in your bulletin. Um, we're very great, grateful for his service and for all our volunteers. Let us begin our service in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Three weeks ago, we heard Peter's confession of faith as told in John's gospel. This week, we hear Mark's version when Peter says, you are the Messiah. In John, the stumbling block is Jesus's invitation to eat his flesh, yikes, given for the life of the world. In Mark 2, the scandal has to do with Jesus's words concerning his own death. And here, Peter himself stumbles over Jesus's words. This scandal lies at the core of who God is in Jesus Christ. A scandal, as we will hear today, that turns our way of thinking about God upside down. Please rise now as you are able for our opening hymn. Number 660, Lift High the Cross.
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us pray. O God, through suffering and rejection, you bring forth our salvation. And by the glory of the cross, you transform our lives. Inspire and enable us for the sake of the gospel to turn from the lure of evil Take up your cross and follow your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The image of the servant of the Lord is one of the notable motifs in the book of Isaiah. Today's reading describes the mission of the servant whom early Christians associated with Jesus. Like Jesus, the servant does not strike back at his detractors, but trusts in God's steadfast love. A reading from the book of Isaiah. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Morning by morning he wakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me. Who will declare me guilty? The word of the Lord. This text uses various images to illustrate how damaging and hurtful the way we speak to and about others can be. Not only are we to control our speech, but what we say and how we say it are to reflect our faith. A reading from the letter of James. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. <clears throat> Anyone who makes no mistakes is speaking, in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. Word of God, word of life. Please rise for the reading of the gospel.
The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 8th chapter. Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and wicked, or rather sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the Christ, his Son. Amen. Over the last couple of weeks, we've focused on the book of James, providing a glimpse of the gospel, or rather discovering it in chapter 1, and then looking at how when faith is right, good works, that is, deeds of kindness for others, spontaneously break forth as an expression of gratitude rather than as a requirement for salvation. For the Lutherans, good works are necessary but they're not necessary for salvation. They're necessary for the sake and well-being of your neighbor. Today, we turn from the book of James to the gospel of Mark and Mark's presentation of who Jesus was. Sometimes it's better to decline an invitation, or so I thought, after the event I'm about to share with you. A few years ago now, a good friend of mine and fellow pastor was organizing a weekend retreat for members of her church to be held at Holden Village on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know this name. The Lutheran pastor involved in the assassination plot against Hitler, who died at the hands of the Nazis just before the end of the Second World War. We want you to lead the retreat given your background in theology, my friend wrote me in an email. Is this something you consider? Absolutely, I remember replying. Bonhoeffer had become one of my favorites since I became a faculty member at Seattle University where I was teaching at the time. Not only did he play an important role in the German resistance against the Nazis, he also wrote some incredible theology while in prison shortly before his execution in 1945. And some of you know the story. He died on April 9, 1945, uh, executed by the Nazis for his involvement in the Valkyrie plot, which was the attempt on the part of German resistance to take Hitler's life. It failed. Uh, Hitler saw it as a sign of God that the Third Reich was God's will. 
Bonhoeffer was uh, um, in prison or was already in prison, uh, transferred and finally executed. His death occurred about three weeks before the arrival of the Allied forces to clear out the camps. So it's a rather tragic ending, but also an incredible witness to faith and really the cost of discipleship. The theology I'm thinking about, though, appeared in a series of letters that Bonhoeffer sent to friends and family while he was incarcerated by the Nazis in Berlin between 1943 and 1944. These documents contained explosive material concerning the nature of God, the person of Jesus Christ, and the mission of a church, rather of the church, in our increasingly secular world. Kind of resonates with life in the Pacific Northwest. How is one a Christian in the midst of an increasingly secular culture? In America, Bonhoeffer's papers and letters from prison gained notoriety after their translation into English under the provocative title, Prisoner of God. The original hardcover edition of which sells, I couldn't believe this, for nearly $600 today. Since then, much cheaper translations have thankfully appeared. This made it a lot easier to include several of his letters in a course I began teaching in 2010 on the question of what it means to be a person of faith living in a context like the Pacific Northwest, where church attendance has been in steady decline for decades. What an opportunity, I thought, after my friend emailed, to examine these letters with a church group. Maybe in Bonhoeffer we could find a guide for living in what he called a world come of age. A world come of age. That is, a culture in which God had been outgrown by adults who felt they no longer needed God. There was, however, one catch. The average age of the group's participants was 13, <laughs> and none of them had ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, don't get me wrong. One of the most gratifying teaching experiences I have had has been working with our confirmation students this year here at Queen Anne Lutheran, most of whom are about the same age as the young people who attended the retreat. At the same time, though, I spent the vast majority of my time teaching college students as a professor back then and adults, older adults, in churches on the weekends. The prospect of working with such a young group accordingly made me a little nervous, but I decided to do it anyway. And I'm here to tell you today that I'm so glad I did, at least in retrospect. <laughs> the retreat went smoothly for most of the weekend. I enjoyed the group, the surroundings, and of course the topic. But then it happened. During one of the last sessions, I met some emotionally charged resistance to the subject matter, the kind of which rarely, if ever, I saw in the college classroom. The topic was God, and one of the students had a huge problem with Bonhoeffer's depiction of God. Now, Bonhoeffer, you may recall, spoke in a daring way about God's helplessness, God's weakness, and God's vulnerability on the cross. Helplessness, weakness, and vulnerability. Only a suffering God, he wrote, can help. One of my seminary professors, influenced by Bonhoeffer, put it like this. A right understanding of the cross turns our conceptual world upside down, teaching us decisively that we do not understand who God is or how God works. We expect to find God in success and power, yet the cross reveals to us God's weakness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 25. Listen to this. Why would I want to put my faith in a God of weakness? I remember the student saying in response. I need a God who can fix my problems, not a God who hangs helplessly from a cross.
resonates, doesn't it? One of the real benefits of teaching people this age. This young man was being honest and forthright about how the theology was affecting him personally. Silence, as you might imagine, overtook the room. We all understood why. The young man who made the comment had named the elephant in the room. What point is there in worshiping a God who cannot step in when we need him? And how on earth, as Bonhoeffer suggested, can a suffering God help us? Wow. Let me repeat those. These are important questions. What point is there in worshiping a God who cannot step in when we need him? And how on earth can a suffering God help us? Suddenly, I wondered why I had accepted my friend's invitation to speak. <laughs> the question being asked was not merely an academic one. It came from the heart, and I had no idea how to answer it. I mean, in moments of desperation, who wouldn't want the almighty Lord of the universe to swoop in and provide rescue? By extension, who wouldn't want a Messiah consistent with what Peter expects in today's gospel, namely, one who can intervene and fix everything? Mark 8 conveys to us a crucial turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up to this point in the story, Jesus had been traveling throughout the countryside, healing people of their diseases and making them whole again as a sign of God's emerging kingdom. We tend to think of miracles apart from their original context. The purpose of miracles in the New Testament, of which the most common is healing, was to disclose as signs the coming kingdom of God. They were manifestations of this kingdom, a kingdom that would provide healing and wholeness to an entire people. Obviously, people were raising questions about Jesus' identity in the process. Was he one of Israel's former, former prophets? Or perhaps John the Baptist, come back from the dead? Or was he Elijah, who, according to 1 Kings, never experienced death at all? You probably remember Elijah being taken up in the chariot of fire. Lots of people are asking about me. We might imagine Jesus saying to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? What a strange question. Surely Jesus knows the answer. He's Jesus. The subsequent verses illustrate that. Maybe it's because, like any good educator, he wants to start with what his followers already knew and build on that. Peter, the leader of the group, immediately responds, you are the Messiah, he declares. Jesus, in turn, accepts his reply, only to insist that those present refrain from telling anybody else. Scholars call this the messianic secret. Now, here's my question. Why would Jesus hide his real identity? Was it a strategy to provide relief from the crowds or unwanted attention from the Romans? Possibly. Or did Jesus include it as a way of gradually, as a way gradually to reveal who he was, the suffering savior, whose full identity appears right after his death, when the Roman centurion standing at the foot of the cross affirms that truly this man was God's son. For whatever reason, the disciples refrain from probing why Jesus insists they tell no one. Yet when Jesus proceeds to foretell the suffering and rejection he will endure at the hands of Judah's leaders, Peter decides he's had enough. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. What do you think made Peter so upset? I suspect it was the same thing that inspired the young man at Holden to speak out against Bonhoeffer. Neither he nor Peter heard what they wanted to hear. You hear that? Neither he nor Peter heard what they wanted to hear. Peter wanted a winner, a triumphant leader and messiah. Not the man of sorrows or the suffering servant who would suffer defeat, 
Is it surprising, therefore, that when Jesus was arrested by the authorities, his followers fled to avoid capture? Is it surprising that Peter denied him three times? And is it surprising that he died without them being nearby? Who would want to pick up their cross and follow a vulnerable, suffering Savior? No wonder they ran away. I probably would too. That wasn't in the script. <laughs> um, we'll turn to self-personal confessions next week. Um, Jesus rebukes, Jesus' rebuke, rather, of Peter serves as one of the most important moments in his ministry. He is not the Messiah anyone expected. Something new appeared to be unfolding before their eyes, and Jesus helped them to see it by differentiating divine things from human things. Let me explain. When we speak of God in terms of power and might, we ignore the way God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Perhaps we don't want to hear it. After all, what is there in a God whom Paul associates with weakness? Why, moreover, speak of God in Christ as the fellow sufferer who understands, to quote a modern philosopher, when it's so much easier to believe in a God of raw power, even if we can't explain why this all-powerful God refrains from intervening in all sorts of atrocities, including multiple genocides, costing millions of people their lives throughout the last century. Naturally, the Bible here offers some precedent for thinking of God in terms of power. The appearance of God in Jesus Christ, however, should give us pause. For it is within his story, particularly his death on the cross, as well as his conversation with Peter in today's gospel, that the power of God's love, God's power, replaces the all-too-human love of power. We need, in other words, to rethink our understanding of God and God's power based on who God has shown himself to be for us in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we set our mind on human things and miss the presence of the vulnerable God in our lives. So how do we focus on divine things and live before the vulnerable God? As Paul, Martin Luther, and Bonhoeffer all affirm, we must seek God in places we wouldn't expect. In the face of the poor, for example, we should also be mindful of our reliance on God in times of our own vulnerability and pain. For God's power, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, is made perfect in weakness. God does not cause our suffering but hopefully we can learn to depend upon God in the moments where we do. When Bonhoeffer remarks that only a suffering God can help, I suspect he refers here to what I would call the power that empowers. The power that empowers. Relying on God and no longer simply trusting in ourselves, especially our fleeting gifts and abilities, we can sometimes do far more than we expected. Some of you know this by painful experience. The power that motivates us becomes noticeable when this happens. Where does it come from? It comes from God. The empowering power of God was the motivating force that sustained Paul in the face of persecution. Luther in the midst of hardship and plague and Bonhoeffer in a time of absolute hopelessness. It compels us to do God's work, to help the widow and orphan in distress, as we heard from James, and to comfort those who mourn, but with a caveat. God depends on us to do the helping. God depends on us to do the helping. It's his work, our hands. Simply waiting for God to intervene means God's work never gets done.
The power of God, we discover, exists even though it remains counterintuitive. It explains Peter's protest as well as the student's reaction to Bonhoeffer at Holden Village. Let us place our minds on divine things. By letting God be the one whom God has revealed himself to be, so that we can live by a different power, a power that can move mountains, but with human hands. And may each of us learn to rely on this power, the power of God welling up within us, compelling us to go on rather than give up. And may this saving power strengthen us the power that shines through our weakness and vulnerability, just as it did through the blades of the cross. May this power become manifest in us when we are in need or when we feel weak. The power of God's power, the empowering power that empowers us to live more fully, to love more fully, and to serve more fully. I wish I had that answer when the young man asked me about, or rather challenged me about God's power, and really Bonhoeffer. But my firm conviction, and I hope you heard this today, is that God's power becomes evident in our moments of weakness and vulnerability. It's a kind of indwelling power that motivates us to go on rather than give up. And that's the kind of power we, re we really need now. Long into a pandemic, all kinds of things happening, loss, mourning, this is the power of God in us, the power of love, not the love of power. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Again this week for our hymn of the day, we'll remain seated and we'll sing unaccompanied. Today's hymn of the day comes to us from rural Kentucky. And in this song tradition, there is a sense of perpetual motion. So each stanza is going to follow pretty quickly the way we do it today, a cappella. I'll have some wood blocks to help us keep the tempo along the way. I'll sing the first stanza myself as an introduction, and then join me to repeat the first stanza and sing the hymn all the way through. Savor each other's voices and these words that tie in to today's message and to our gospel lesson. And of course, if you need to drop out, let the congregation carry you and come right back in when you can.
Please rise as you are able to say the Apostles' Creed. Let us confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and a life everlasting. Amen. Made children and heirs of God's promise, we pray for the church, the world, and all in need. Revealing God, you have made yourself known through bread and wine, water and word. Continue to nurture our church that we might experience and share your presence with one another. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Creating God, you brought life into being and called it good. Bring new creation to lands devastated by tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, fires, and other disasters. Restore forests curb overflowing waters, and bring rain to those areas experiencing drought. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Protecting God, you desire all people to live in peace and safety. Provide for all who are in danger. Strengthen first responders to help meet to the complex needs of others. Provide care and compassion as they face trauma themselves. Lord, in your mercy. Transforming God, you announce release to the captives and freedom to the oppressed. Break the chains of discrimination and injustice. Amplify voices that go unheard and inspire us to advocate for those who are overlooked. Lord, in your mercy. Forming God, you gather this community together. Shape our communal life that in our prayer, praise, and worship, we honor you and encourage one another. Keep our disagreement civil and increase our joy in working together. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? Holy God, we pray as well for those who, who mourn, uh, for those present here who mourn the loss of a loved one or loved ones. This has been a difficult year. We ask that you give us your empowering power and sustain us in the face of such loss. I also pray for a close friend of mine, another pastor who's been missing uh, on a hike in Colorado for four days now. Please find a way to him and empower the right people to help him. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Redeeming God, you accompany your people through every stage of life. We give you thanks for the saints who now rest in your embrace, especially those over the past year who have been affiliated in some way to our congregation. Comfort those who mourn, Lord keeping them mindful of your promises. Lord, in your mercy. Receive these prayers, O God, and those in our hearts only known only to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.
we invite you to remain standing as we continue with the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right, our duty and our joy, that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you, almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ, who on this day overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection open to us the way of everlasting life. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us. Save us. Deliver us from evil. The kingdom If you are participating this morning in communion, I invite you at this time to take out your communable and peel off the bottom tab to eat the bread, as I say uh, words of blessing in a moment, as well as then the top tab to drink the wine. The waste can go in a paper bag found in each pew. God invites you to this meal of grace, this food of forgiveness. Receive it accordingly. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you.
Jesus, bread of life, we have received from your presence in, with, and under the bread and wine of Holy Communion more than we could ever ask. As you have nourished us in this meal, now strengthen us to love the world with your own life. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated for announcements. It is a pleasure to see all of you here for the last 10 a.m. worship service of the season. Next week, we will uh, switch back to our normal calendar, meaning that we have one service at 8 a.m. Um, next week uh, is Welcome Sunday, so there will be a break in between services for fellowship. And then at 10.30, we'll have our second service. So please remember... 8 o'clock and 10.30 will be our worship times beginning next week, the 19th, Welcome Sunday. On Sunday the 26th, be sure to join us if you are able for a discussion on the process of becoming a Reconciling in Christ congregation. If you have questions, we invite you to reach out to any member of the team, including Jenny Porter, um, Kirsty and uh, Colin, and those names are listed in our Friday weekly email to the congregation. At 1 p.m. today, I want to remind all the uh, parents uh, and uh, young people who are in con confirmation that we have our uh, first meeting of the last uh, chapter of our confirmation process. We're going to be talking about grace and how that informs our worship life as well as our understanding of the sacraments. So that'll be one o'clock. Please meet me by the conference room and we'll determine there uh, what space would be most appropriate for us to uh, have this class. Are there any, any other announcements for the good of the congregation? Kyle, please. Thank you. Next Sunday is going to be exciting. We have our, uh, it's Welcome Sunday, which means we have our, uh, our annual little church fair. So you'll learn about the various ministries of this church next Sunday, and you'll be encouraged if you wish to participate. It's, uh, among other things, when we release the upcoming year's uh, forum calendar, and we have some exciting uh, options there for you, as well as uh, opportunities to learn about other parts of our various ministries. So we warmly encourage you to, uh, to join us next Sunday for that. Rich, please. Thank you, Rich. And, and uh, if you're interested in, in helping with this process of ushering or of lecturing and assisting, please uh, reach out to Rich uh, or to me um, as we have need in this area. Without volunteers, we don't have a worship service. So it's really important, and we thank you for your consideration. The last thing I did want to say really quick is uh, to put this on your calendars. Reformation Sunday is also going to be the Sunday of Confirmation. So uh, we are going to uh, um, have a special day that day, and we hope that all of you can be there. Please rise now for the blessing. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our sending hymn, God's work, our hands, is hymn number 1,000 in All Creation Sings. I don't know where that is. They have it. <laughs> 